Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, Where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars, and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel, and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. In the course of popular music, it's not just the artists and bands that push music to new heights, new expressions, new sounds. Sometimes, a record label can be the source of innovation and genius. In this episode, we talk about the great and iconic institutions that were, in their own ways, stars of the show. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what is the greatest record label? That's the age-old question. Clint, I want to suggest that if you're a casual music fan, you actually know quite a lot about record labels and the signature sounds that emerge from them. Let's start with Motown. There's such a sound to Motown. So in 1960, Barry Gordy Jr. founded the record label and called it Motown. blend of the words motor and town because Detroit was Motor City, the motor town, the heart of the American car manufacturing. But before he founded Motown, Gordy was a music entrepreneur. And in the late 1950s, he represented a young Detroit musician named Jackie Wilson. And he had written a hit song for him called Reet Petit. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, 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 oh. No, I don't. In 1957, he met a 17-year-old singer-songwriter named Smokey Robinson, and he began producing Smokey and his band, initially called The Matadors, but soon changed to The Miracles. My mama told me you 
1959, Gordy wrote a song called Money, That's What I Want, recorded by Barrett Strong. This would be the first hit song to be released on Gordy's new label. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need he hired the young songwriter, Smokey Robinson, to be the label's vice president, and they purchased a building at 2648 West Grand Boulevard in Detroit. This would become the label's office and studio, known to the world as Hitsville, USA. A year later, the label's first pop number one was Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes. Just to point out, these two early hits, Money, That's What I Want, and Please Mr. Postman, were songs that were staples in the early years of the Beatles, right, Clint? Big time. Both of these songs appeared on the Beatles' second studio album, With the Beatles. Side one closer, Please Mr. Postman, vocals by John Lennon. Side two closer, Money, That's What I Want. Again, lead vocals, John Lennon. The best things in life are free, but you can keep them for the best and please not give me more. That's what I want. That's what I want. So for a band that means so much to us, this was a massively influential label. That's what I want. We're going to get to the incredible artist signed by Barry Gordy Jr., but one of his strokes of genius or of dumb luck was having a stable of writers that wrote incredible hooks. Writers like Smokey Robinson and the trio of writers known as Holland Dozier Holland, Brian and Eddie Holland, and Lamont Dozier, who would go on to write an incredible number of hit songs for Motown Records. In addition to the writers, he assembled a house band, musicians that would come to work to record on whatever artist was coming in that day. And the house band was known as the Funk Brothers. There's a great documentary from 2002 by Paul Justman called Standing in the Shadows, which highlights the group of musicians that were this house band and played on nearly every song from 1959 to 1972. Did you see that movie, by the yeah, way? Yeah, it's incredible. What's your favorite Motown group? Well, I wouldn't say group. I'd go with Marvin Gaye. I'd have to say Smokey Robinson, probably. Well, of course, Stevie Wonder. I love the Supremes. Four Tops. Would you happen to know who played the music on the Supremes albums? You know, the instruments and stuff. I have no idea. Did you ever think about that? Mm, I think about it with other... No, I haven't, actually. You know who played the music for Smokey? Mm, not a rattle fan. It's the Miracles. Well, it was Gladys Knight and the Pips, wasn't it? Play, did they play the music? The Pips. I don't think I know any of the musicians. Yeah, I'm familiar with Marvin Gaye. His band? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I can't say. What if I told you it was a group called the Funk Brothers played on all that stuff? All these songs. Yeah, same band. Same band. That house band, the Funk Brothers, is unquestionably one of the key reasons for Motown's success but so too were the incredible artists that sang lead vocal. 
some highlights. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles with songs like You've Really Got a Hold on Me. Really got a hold on me. Really got a hold on me. Tracks of My Tears. So take a good look at my face. you see my smile. Tears of a Clown. Now if there's a smile on my face. Just right there. Boom. Boom. That's just one artist. Oh, That's my just one God. Artist. The Four Tops with songs like I Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. You know that I love you. I can't help myself. I love you and nobody else. Reach Out, I'll Be There. Oh, I love that one. Marvin Gaye with songs like I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And how sweet it is. Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the streets. The Supremes, which featured Diana Ross singing Baby Love. And You Can't Hurry Love. The Temptations, Just My Imagination. A girl like her is truly a dream come true. Out of all the fellows in the world, she belongs to you. But it was just my imagination running away with me. My girl. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Alright, this next artist, Clint, Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> in the early years, songs like Uptight, Everything's Alright. Actually, as great as his run is from 1972 to 1976, we've talked about on this podcast, an unprecedented run of creative genius. But two years before that, he puts out his 12th studio album. And by the way, he's 20 years old, and it's his 12th studio album. 
On this album is, of course, the title track. But also a really funky cover of We Can Work It Out by the Beatles. Try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? But also this song called Sugar, which I can't explain why I love this song, but I just absolutely love this song so much. Back to the Motown catalog. Jackson 5, I Want You Back. ABC. Honestly, Clint, I have to stop myself from going on because an entire season of episodes could be devoted to exploring the music of Motown. I tell you what, it's such a part of our childhood, right? It's such a part of the universe of music that it's almost like playing nursery rhymes or playing like kids songs in in that they're so deeply embedded in all of us. That music is in so many movies those songs are everywhere, and and even now, my kids know Motown songs, and there's such a sound to it. First of all, like lots of horns and strings and percussion, right? That that really defines Motown for me, and that that guitar that just hits the the two and four guitar hit is so Motown. Two, four, two. So one final note on the label's legacy, Clint. It had a profound impact on America, culturally. And this is the point you were just making. I found an article from the BBC from January 2019 called Motown, the Music that Changed America. And it sums it up really well. It says, 60 years on, Motown's classic catalog remains ubiquitous and influential, forming a blueprint for modern soul and pop successes from girl groups to hit songwriters, sampled on countless hip-hop and dance anthems and covered by acts of every genre. The Motown sound is unmistakable for its glorious melodies and killer hooks. Motown was also powerfully significant as a black-owned corporation employing multiracial staff in an era when the mainstream was an exclusionary zone. Here's a clip of Barry Gordy Jr. talking about his vision for bringing black music to everyone. I felt I wanted to do music for all people, and it just turned out that people began feeling it, and black people, white people, Jews, Gentiles, cops, and the robbers, I mean, all love Motown. I know that there are more similarities in the world, in people, than differences. And my goal in Motown was to bring those similarities out in music, in love, togetherness, and trust. People were married to Motown music, they dated 
to Motown music. Smokey Robinson created a great deal of babies from Motown music. You really got a hold on me. entwined into our lives in so many ways the biggest motown thing for me was the big chill soundtrack and it to this day puts me in a place of nostalgia and love for my friends and family it's like the perfect reunion soundtrack. i, I totally agree this is how i discovered motown was yeah, through that soundtrack definitely motown is and will always be the most definitive of all record labels because they had such a brand like that's what record labels are right it's a brand right and motown is so undeniable well it's also really unique in that you know a lot of the songs were written by a very few number of people the music was generally all performed by the same backing band right so it's diversity in terms of vocal performance but Everything else is consistent on a level that I think most people don't think about, but is like subliminally felt. It's intuitively felt, right? Yeah. I don't know if I would know that it was the same band. Right. James Jamerson was the bass player, right, of the Funk Brothers. And he was incredibly influential. And he was, and he had a thing. He only played with one finger. that uh-huh but he only played with one finger and so everywhere like and he just came up with the just fattest bass lines of all time and he's i mean he is ask any bass player their influences he's on he's, he's on, on the on top list. five list but what about the drummer do you know the drummer's name no do you know the guitar player's name no it's crazy right it's crazy These guys made the hits of multiple generations and we don't know who made the music you're right. I'm interested to go through our list of greatest record labels, but I, I agree that I think Motown will be unique in this sense of being so cohesive and so consistent of sound. Yeah. All right, good, so first good one. Good start. Good start. Motown. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits, perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. <laughs> what, do you, what do you got? So I'm going to jump ahead to the 80s. We're going to talk about Bruce Pavitt. So Bruce Pavitt lived in Olympia, Washington. He started a fanzine, a musical magazine, basically, dedicated to the ultra-obscure regional punk scenes of the day. And he called this fanzine Subterranean Pop. Hmm. And with issue number five, Sub Pop, as it became known as, morphed into a label of sorts because he started putting together cassette compilations of underground bands from far-flung American cities, right? So what we know of as grunge and the Seattle sound 
actually started at Evergreen State College. Hmm. And Bruce Pavitt, eventually in 1983, moved to Seattle and met Jonathan Poneman, local concert promoter, radio show DJ, and they got together. Pavitt was the creative guy who loved edgy punk bands, and Poneman was like the business guy with more commercial taste. They actually modeled Sub Pop after Motown. However, it's a very different style of record label. The way it's similar is that Sub Pop hyped the label, meaning they were creating a lifestyle brand. In the way that Motown was. In the way that Motown was. And chasing hits. There was a real indie ethic in the 80s that you weren't supposed to be proud of having hit records or being a hit machine. And John and I, as fans of you know the history of pop music in this this country, really admired labels like Motown and their hit factory mentality. Uh, yeah. And yet it was dissimilar in the fact that they were recording bands and not artists. It is interesting that for both Motown and Sub Pop, the hierarchy was label than artist yes and that's different i think than a lot of other record labels yeah talk to me about some of the iconic highlights of the sub pop catalog sub pop started they released an ep from soundgarden which was called screaming life and that was actually i didn't know that yeah that was their first one and that was in 1987 And then in 1988, they moved into their Seattle office, which is a legendary place. So what happened in Seattle was in the 80s, bands didn't tour through Seattle. They would stop in San Francisco. It just wasn't cost effective to get all the way up there. So it became this real niche scene where they they never left. Insular. Insular, yeah. The, the, The music scene got really tight. And so Jonathan Poneman and Bruce Pavitt capitalized on that all these great bands are writing all these great tunes and no one knows because no one's going there no one's checking it out so in march of 1989 sub pop flew everett true he was a writer for the uk weekly melody maker to seattle to cover the burgeoning scene they fly this guy over they wine and dine him he goes back and writes this article and that alone is what started the grunge movement. So the word grunge actually comes from a description written by Bruce Pavitt of Green Rivers dry as a bone. They eventually became Mud Honey, which you may remember from the single soundtrack. Right. The description that Bruce wrote of that album was ultra loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. That is where the word grunge came from. Basically, what they were doing was, Sub Pop was the ultimate branding machine. They were taking this Pacific Northwest lumberjack, hunyak, woodchuck, like flannel, dirty persona Hmm. and bringing it to pop culture. 
and that's what they brought to the world, which eventually was in Vogue magazine and on the runways in Milan, where these people were wearing flannel shirts and big army boots, and it's just ridiculous. And right. to them, it was ridiculous. They they thought it was ridiculous too. This guy, Everett True, writes this article. All of a sudden, these bands start getting huge in Europe. So they send their next big artist, which was Nirvana. Bleach was their first record, and it was on Sub Pop. And so Nirvana and Mud Honey and a band called Tad went to Europe for six weeks to do a massive tour. And they had a great reception, all from this one article. And that word starts to spread across the pond back to America. And that is actually how Sub Pop and the grunge movement formed. Seattle to Europe, back to the rest of America. Which is the Jimi Hendrix model. Right. These bands are not great bands at this point, right? Like, if you listen to Bleach, it's awesome but it's also rough like the songwriting it's he's still fine in his legs as a songwriter he's still as musicians they're still working it out dave grohl hasn't even joined the band yet all of these deals that sub pop was making with all these bands was a handshake deal there was never a contract one night Chris Novoselic, the bass player for Nirvana, comes to Bruce's house drunk and ready to kick his ass. <laughs> he was the spokesman for Nirvana, and Chris demanded a contract. This contract became the best thing that ever happened to Sub Pop Records because Sub Pop flies Nirvana to Wisconsin to record what would become Nevermind. As they were recording this album, they were also shopping it as a demo to major record labels. But Sub Pop didn't know this, so... They finished the record. Big bidding war, signed to Geffen Records. Nevermind comes out right. under David Geffen Company. Yeah. Because Chris Novoselic had demanded the contract and they had Sub Pop had signed Nirvana to a three record deal, Geffen was forced to buy out Sub Pop. Sub Pop was hanging on by a thread for the entire beginning of their career, right? Finally, Nevermind comes out, sells 8 million copies, and Sub Pop gets a piece of it. Sub Pop logo is on the Nevermind album. Wow. So Sub Pop became just a worldwide brand at that point. Smells Like Teen Spirit's got to be one of the most influential songs in rock music history. Remember when you first heard it? Do you remember? It's one of those records that you're like, I was not ready for it. I didn't get it at first, and yet it swept so fast. Everyone was into Nirvana where I was from. Came out in 91, 92, Smells Like Teen Spirit. In Bloom.
What's the one that goes down, Come as you are. And these became radio anthems. Yes. Which for a small label, it changed the entire city of Seattle. It changed the entire pop culture. That MTV Unplugged from Nirvana. Yes. Big time. Other than Clapton's Unplugged, was there a bigger, more influential Unplugged? No. They played all these obscure Nirvana songs. Which became hits in In their their own right. right. They didn't want to be famous. They did want to be famous at first, but one of Kurt's major complaints was that he ended up playing for the people that used to kick his ass in high school. And he absolutely hated that. So then my next thought was Cameron Crowe. You mentioned the film Singles. Yes. That was my introduction to Seattle and flannel and grunge. And like Chris Cornell has a cameo in that. And I think Eddie Vedder does too, right? Yep, totally. That went hugely mainstream. Kind of changed the independent record game because they were this small company. But we all knew their name, right? I did. Totally. I knew it was this mystical place out west, right? That put out all this great music. Right. The next massive release that they had was Death Cab for Cuties. Ben Gibbard did an electronic indie band called The Postal Service. Yeah. That is the second best-selling album in Sub Pop's history. That sold millions of copies. They ended up playing giant arenas. It's hard to listen to Postal Service and not think that Owl City was listening <laughs> extensively to Postal Service. You would not believe your eyes if 10 million fireflies lit up the world as I fell asleep. Yeah, I, the, the, just the tone of the voice and yeah. Yeah. Some of the other bands, the Shins. Go. Fleet Foxes. The door slam loud and rose of the cloud of Iron and wine. Tonight with the sea and the salty breeze. All these are sub pop. All these are sub pop. The milk from your breast is on my lips. There's hundreds of artists that have been on sub pop. So the reason I chose sub pop was just. It's inspiring to me that two guys that just love music can change 
pop culture so dramatically in a lasting way. These two guys just believed in the music and they believed in their friends and it was like a family in Seattle because it was so isolated. And using strategic moves like bringing over that guy from Europe, that is so inspiring to me. Mm. And that was pre-internet. That was like straight up selling CDs and vinyl. It's an inspiration to me to this day. By the way, I just got a text from Kevin O'Leary. He worked at Sub Pop in the early 90s. Shut up. Wait, and you just got a text from him? I texted him while you were talking about Sub Pop, being like, do you have a second to talk about Sub Pop? Should we call him? Yes. Are you kidding me? Whoa. One of the most knowledgeable music fans that I know, hilarious raconteur, and a guy that has personal experience with Sub Pop. Let's do it. Okay. Good price. Kevin O'Leary, you're on the age-old question with me and Clint. <laughs> hey. I'm ready for it. Clint was just talking about Sub Pop. It occurred to me, I know someone who has a personal experience with Sub Pop Records. And the first label we talked about was Motown. And the second record label we talked about was Sub Pop. Actually, how similar they are in that they both created this brand that in some ways put the catalog itself above the artists. 100%. So tell us, what was your connection to Sub Pop? My connection to Sub Pop, I was a college radio DJ, got into their early releases. I remember when you know Nirvana's Love Buzz came out and they were kind of considered the heavy metal band within the Sub Pop family. Sub Pop was, I think they'd released a handful of records and then they released a box set. So further to your sort of Motown comparison they released a box set called sub pop 200 and there were pictures all taken by charles peterson of john and bruce and with tracks from you know mud honey and the fastbacks and jesse bernstein and nirvana and some other bands and it really just sort of created this aura you know for me personally i sort of grew up on east coast hardcore was infatuated with some west coast hardcore but the pacific northwest was like this complete unknown and so for me it like played into all these stereotypes you know these guys are wearing uh, you know flannel shirts and beads and filson trousers and it was all kind of moss covered and soaked in beer and but anyway the whole thing was appealing and i liked the music and uh, when my girlfriend and I decided uh, to road trip after college, we drove to Seattle and uh, I, w- I walked to First and Pine where Sub Pop's offices were, rode the elevator up and ran into uh, Jenny Body, who was the publicist there at the time, and Megan Jasper, who is now mm-hmm. the president of Sub Pop, and asked them if they were hiring. They said, not really, but if you want to come and put together press kits and clip reviews out of magazines they pay me to do that so i did that as one of my three jobs until they started selling more records and then i went to work full-time uh, running sales and then i was there when you know everything got crazy so it was a it was a fun special time to be there and especially for me because i was the only person who wasn't really from the northwest so it was a great sort of diving into the northwest cultural deep end and what was that like for, for the people at that label and the artists when Sub Pop started to become this cultural phenomenon? Yeah, well, what was interesting about Sub Pop and what I liked about it was punk rock and indie rock, despite the cries of uh, open-mindedness, you know, it can be a pretty elitist scene. You know, if you're not dressed the right way or if you don't know the right records, then it's it can be pretty exclusionary. And Sub Pop sort of turned that up on its head. I mean, they were kind of like, hey, 
you know, all comers, like, let's go. Um, you know, we're here. There's no attitude. We're just friends making music and drinking beer. And, and it was, it really lowered that barrier to entry for a lot of people who were kind of looking for a scene. And I experienced that firsthand just walking into the office. It was just a really great group of people. I think there were 10 of us at the time. You know, they were, their profile was growing. I think Soundgarden was the first band to get signed to a major label. I think A&M signed them. And then Geffen came in and they wanted to sign Nirvana. And the deal was it would be sort of a, a, a split release, right? So the first, when Nevermind was released, you know, Sub Pop was, the logo was on the back with the Geffen logo and it was, you know, licensed exclusively to Geffen or what have you. So when Nevermind came out, you know, it's funny, there was a band that uh, Geffen had signed at the same time called the Galactic Cowboys. And I remember all the original advertisements, the print ads, they were shared. It's, you know, here are these two new alternative records from Geffen, Galactic Cowboys and Nirvana. And Nirvana played a show at the, at the OK Hotel when they kicked off their tour. And we all went and it was very crowded and kind of drunk and very Northwesty. It was great. K-Rock started playing Smells Like Teen Spirit and then you know the, these radio stations started picking up on the song as Nirvana was traveling around the country and then the rest is well known to anybody who kind of follows that that fabled story that as the single picked up steam and sales were going crazy Nirvana's venues were getting bigger and bigger and I just remember these are the days of, of SoundScan uh, where you would get on a daily basis, automatic fax would come out with the, with the sales figures of records that you were selling. And we would walk in in the morning and literally stand around the fax machine and just wait to see what had happened overnight. And it was staggering. It went from sort of thousands to tens of thousands. And then it just took on a life of its own. And by the time the band got back to Seattle, uh, they played a few nights sold out at the Paramount. By the time the tour got around, it was really bittersweet because when we all went to the Paramount show and saw all these throngs of people we'd never seen at places like the OK Hotel or Off-Ramp, and Nirvana takes the stage and there's five video cameras following them around, we knew something had changed. Um, and it wasn't sort of an elitist thing. It was kind of like, there was a, it was really a seismic cultural shift. And... You know, as the months went on, you know, as far as there, a lot of these bands played together, it was really kind of the haves and the have-nots. Some bands got signed to major labels. A few of them enjoyed uh, success, Soundgarden and Nirvana uh, specifically. And even though Pearl Jam wasn't entirely uh, local, they sort of got lumped in with that. And then there were bands who everybody else loved who got signed and then got dropped or never got signed. And so... You know, it sort of trickled down into uh, the neighborhoods where, you know, there's a bar in Capitol Hill called the Comet Tavern, where all of those bands used to just get together and socialize. And all of a sudden you had some bands who were making a whole lot of money and touring the world. And other bands were still playing Wednesday night gigs and going to the Comet and drinking Rainier. Wow. It's so incredible to have lived, first of all, in Seattle when that scene came out, but then to actually to be in the building of Sub Pop and to be a part of that team to have witnessed it. You've really lived through an amazing chapter in popular music. I mean, I consider myself fortunate, one, being a 
you know, a, an obsessive record collector still and just music hound uh, to have been around that. But yeah, to, to be there and it was a great time. Um, very, and we were, I was lucky to be there. When you were working as a DJ and you received something from Sub Pop Records, what did that look like? They all had a similar look because, you know, they were a lot of them had Charles Peterson's black and white photographs on them. You know, and again, to your Motown comparison, you could also compare it in a similar way to Blue Note, where, you know, there was this attempt at branding, you know, there's the band, but branding the label. You thought if you saw a sub pop record, you're like, you know what, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give that a try. Totally. One side note, I I brought my daughter out for the twenty fifth anniversary oh, wow. and uh, reconnected with a bunch of people. She was fifteen at the time. I get to share that with her and it was fun. All right, before we say goodbye, what's a song from Sub Pop's catalog that we can play you out on? Oh my gosh. Negative creep. That's what I I pick negative creep, Nirvana. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the Age Old Question. Thanks, Rich. Talk to you soon. All right, see you, bye. Let's go to the comments. <laughs> Let's go to the comments. Let's go to the comments. In response to our episode 45 on the greatest songs under two minutes, Gareth writes on Facebook, Here's my nomination for songs under two minutes. The Elements, a song by humorist Tom Lair, which puts the periodic table of elements to a song. You know this one? I don't, but I can't wait. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Randy Newman called Tom Lair one of the great American songwriters, as a lyricist as good as there's been in the last half of the 20th century. As a scientist and mathematician, Lair worked at Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory in the 1950s as part of the NSA. It's maybe where he got the idea to sing about the periodic table of elements. More comments. Caroline writes, Thinking about your episode about best songs under two minutes, I'm listening to Little Feet right now. Don't forget about Don't Bogart That Joint. Oh, good one. Don't Bogart That Joint, my So this topic of what is the greatest record label, it's so expansive. I mean, if you looked at the list of record labels. (laughs) So far, we've only talked about Motown and Sub Pop. So the conversation needs to go on. Yes. And I would say the answer to the question, did we do it? Did we do it? We started to do it. We started to do it. I mean, there's so many more record labels to consider. We're gonna. I don't even know how we're gonna choose. That's why they pay us the big bucks. Why don't you guys help us choose? What do you want to know about? Yeah. What record label had a meaningful impact on your life and your perception of music? We hope you had fun, as much fun as we did, and we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at 
the age-old question. Facebook, the age-old question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.